the last time that you gathered your family together and said, we're gonna seek the Lord together. We're gonna open his word and prayed together and sought the Lord together, obeyed God together, served God together. And when was the last time that you privately, personally said, I have got to get to the place of worship? Thanks for joining us today for Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. I'm Aaron Paulus. We're in the middle of a series called Awakenings, and last week in part one of the message, Seeking the Sender of Revival, Pastor Trent introduced us to young King Josiah. He led the nation of Israel into a time of revival by seeking the face of God. Today, we'll learn about the extreme measures that he took to restore the place of worship. So let's lean into part two as Pastor Trent challenges us to follow Josiah's example as we seek God, the sender of revival. While he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. Now notice the difference. He began to seek the God of David, his father. Verse 2 tells us that he walked in the ways of his father, David. What's the difference? What's the difference in seeking the God of your father and walking in the ways of your father? Let me tell you the difference. If you walk in the ways of your father, if you had a godly father, you'll be a good boy. You won't be a troublemaker. You'll be likable. You'll know all the rules. You'll be well-respected. And you'll have all the answers in youth group. And you will fake your way through the Christian life and not seek the God of your Father. When you stop being content to walk in the ways and just kind of tolerate God so you won't get in trouble, not just admire God from a distance, but when you make the choice, I am no longer content in walking in the ways of my Father, but now I'm going to seek the God of my Father, all of a sudden God becomes real to you. You own Him in such a way that you have a personal relationship that is not dependent upon your Father anymore. It's just dependent upon your available heart and God's grace to you, inviting you to seek His face. All of a sudden God becomes personal. You can't stay away from encounters with Him because you realize that encounters with God are the only thing that satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. And everything else your heart could ever seek will leave you spectacularly unsatisfied other than the face and the heart of God. Have you just walked in the ways of your Father? Or have you begun to seek the God of your Father? That's the difference. As a 16-year-old, that's what he chose to do. And it made all the difference in the world. God invites you to seek him and his face. Jeremiah 29, verse 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Get your eyes off of every other thing that competes for your heart and seek Him and Him alone. In Amos chapter 5, verse 4, 
God says this, seek me and live. There's two implications. If you don't seek me, you're going to die. Your life's going to feel like a slow death. The other implication is this. You haven't even really lived until you seek me. You wonder why life's so boring and unsatisfying and you just keep bouncing from whatever the next stimulant is and it never satisfies. You haven't even lived until you've sought the face of God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, a familiar verse that Jesus told us in the New Testament. But seek first, number one priority on your calendar, on your task list every day, the rest of my life, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all those other things, they can be yours without guilt. If you will put God first and seek Him from a heart orientation that says, I'm going after Him, no holds barred, all the way. I thought about this week, how to illustrate this, and I was reading again in Tim Keller's book on prayer that I've mentioned to you a couple of times, and he has a little illustration in there about sailing. How many of you have ever gone sailing where the movement of the boat was entirely dependent upon the wind, right? Seeking God is like sailing because it is completely dependent upon the wind of the Spirit. However, what you do in sailing is you've got to make sure that you unfurl the sails. You throw the sails high. You are at church, you are with godly people, you are crying out to God in prayer with a Bible open. All of those are different things that raise the sails of your life and the wind the wind of the Spirit catches those sails and shoots you to the face of God. And it is not a passive process. You grab hold, it's so exciting and so joy-filled and there's such wonder, all you got to do is keep the boat straight. And the accelerant and the movement will thrill your heart. Seeking is like sailing. And pretty soon you are in a completely different place than you were when you started. But some of us are not sailing. Some of us are like, "Uh, it feels more like this. It feels more like rowing. It's like so monotonous and I'm so sore and it's a chore and it's a task. And that's okay. As long as you've got your boat headed in the right direction and you're making some progress, there are seasons where you have to row. It takes some effort. Sometimes it's against the wind and against the current, and, but you've still got to make progress and you've still got to point your boat in the right direction and you'll make progress. And then pretty soon you need to find a sail. Get that thing up there and let the wind take you. Some of you say, I'm not really rowing. I'm, I'm more like drifting. It's like, man, I caught a bad current about a decade ago and it's just kind of been sending me out further and further away. God seems so distant. It's like I couldn't even get back if I wanted to. I even kind of forgot what He looks like. and I'm, I mean, just there's no hope. Listen, find an oar. Get your Bible open. Grab some friends. Tell them I've drifted so far off course. Would you please pray for me? What do I do to get back? Get the sails up and point your boat in the right direction. You can make progress again. Some of you say, I'm not even doing that. I'm just sinking. I mean, Trent, this storm, my boat took on water. 
someone that I loved betrayed me or disappointed me or they died and somebody sinned against me and all this marital difficulty and kids are a wreck and my daddy you I mean, my daddy would make Manasseh look like a priest I mean that may just I've got so many things I am sinking listen bail water find an oar raise a sail, and you can get started again. God is inviting you in whatever situation you are. Seek my face. Here's the third thing. God awakens a purged heart. God awakens a purged heart. Look at the middle part of verse 3. In the twelfth year, a uh, little math in church, held what you've been? 20 years old. I know some of you are struggling to carry the one. and It's like 20. He's 20 years old. So what does a 20-year-old king do? A 20-year-old king does this. He began to purge Judah. Underline the word purge. He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. And so they had all this paraphernalia of false worship. There were so many ungodly influences competing for their heart. And when Josiah set his heart to seek the Lord, he said, I'm going to remove every competing obstacle for our hearts so we can all seek the Lord together. Let's find out how serious he was about that little project. Verse 4, and they chopped down just underline those two words. So what would have been in his hand if he was chopping down the altars of the Baals in his presence? An axe. Okay, so imagine a 20-year-old king with an axe marching through town. Don't you think the people would have started like, what is going on? And maybe the rumors behind his back were, there's a new king in town. And he's going to make some changes. It's a new day. And there's going to be new influences in town. So he's marching around with his axe and he's chopping down these altars of Baal. And then it says he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the asherim and the carved and the metal images. And he made dust of them. He wasn't content to chop them down. He began to obliterate every influence. It, it goes on. It says he, he made dust of them and he scattered them over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. It's like you want your idol? You're dead. Now so are they. You should be in the same place. Verse 5, and he also burned the bones of the priest on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 6, and in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon and as far as Naphtali in the ruins all around Verse 7, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim into the, and the images into powder and cut down the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. How many think this guy was serious? My question is, how serious are you? You say, oh, that's Old Testament. They did crazy things back in the Old Testament. Can I show you a New Testament verse? There was an awakening in the church right after Jesus had ascended to heaven. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 19, we find out that there was a magician who began to seek the Lord. 
and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. How many of you would like to have that investment portfolio? That would build a really nice church. But they didn't sell it. They burned it because they wanted to remove every competing influence for their heart. Why were he so serious? Because he realized you couldn't just manage false worship. You have to obliterate false worship. You know what some of us do with our false worship, some of our sinful habits, some of the things that we run to that we know are contrary to God's will in our lives. we got a bad habit. we got a bad friend. we got a bad relationship. Instead of cutting that off, instead of removing that out of our way, we try to tame it. We try to manage it. We kind of keep our distance, but close enough to where if we wanted to, we could go back to it, instead of cutting it down, breaking it in pieces, burning it, and grinding it to powder. You ever watch that show on the Discovery Channel, When Animals Attack? You ever watch that, gather your eight-year-olds around and say, let's watch this? You ever watch that? How many of you are actually secretly cheering for the animals? Because how many of you have never seen this show? Okay, so I brought an episode. We're going to watch a little episode here. So just watch this. Now, now we've got three people in the story here. Two of them are idiots. Um, and one of them is a predator. I don't know what the guy's doing on the back end, but he's smarter than the guy on the front end. I, I'm not quite sure what this guy thinks, but I think he thinks, oh, he's going to pray, which is a good idea, but I think he's praying to the alligator. If he was praying to God, God would tell him to run. Um, and so I think he thinks that he's tamed the alligator, that it's his friend. Maybe he feels like he has to, don't do that. No, no. You can kind of guess what happens next, right? And as much as we think that guy's an idiot, some of us are doing the same thing with our idols. You are playing around with it. You are trying to tame it. You think you can control it rather than obliterating it. And some of us have this kind of stuff in our hearts. Some of us have it in our homes. Josiah was so serious, he wanted to remove it from the nation. So here's your project for this week. I want you to purge not only your heart, but your home. In order to do that, you're going to need a tool. Now, I don't know if you need an axe or a chainsaw or a fire pit, but one thing you're really going to need is one of these. Grab each one of your children. Don't throw them in the trash, but grab them (laughs) and give them one of these. And systematically go through your home looking for every influence that is preventing you from seeking God. That means music, books, movies, artwork, songs digitally on your iTunes, 
movies on Netflix, and everything that you know is contrary to a heart that needs to be awakened to seeking God. And once you have gathered those things together, purge it, destroy it, burn it if necessary, but get it out of the way because God awakens a seeking heart. Here's the fourth thing. God awakens a tender heart. Look at verse 8. Now in the 18th year of his reign, how old would he have been? 26. What does a 26-year-old who seeks God look like? What does he do? In the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land of the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and the next guy who was the governor, and the next guy, and Johan, and the recorder, and here's what he did. He repaired the house of the Lord is God. It had been 250 years since the place of worship had been functional. And in order to create corporate worship, in order to seek the Lord together, in order to be an influence, he knew there had to be a repair of the place of worship. Here's what a tender heart does. Here's five actions of a tender heart. You want to know if you have a tender heart? A tender heart says this, I will repair the place of worship. If I ask you, what is your place of worship? I'm sure that you'd probably identify this room. This is the place where we come and gather together and sing our songs and we respond to the Word of God and we pray our prayers. Of course, this is a place of worship. But if this is your only place of worship... You need to repair the place of worship. When was the last time you fathers, pastor, dad, gathered your family together and said, we're going to seek the Lord together. We're going to open His Word. We're going to get our eyes on God because God has His eyes looking for someone whose heart is blameless and prayed together and sought the Lord together, obeyed God together, served God together. And when was the last time that you privately, personally, without any external pressure, said, I have got to get to the place of worship because I am going to seek the Lord. I'm not content with walking in ways. I must seek the God who is worthy to be sought. Repl repair the place of worship. Look down in verse 14. And when they were bringing out the money, as they began to repair the house of the Lord, they had a money campaign and there was a lot of money and they brought it out. When they began bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. The book that he found was probably a scroll either of what we call the book of Deuteronomy that we all have nicely tucked away in our Bibles, or it might have been the first five books of the Bible. Either way, that book had been so neglected, 
so ignored, so rejected as authoritative, and so forgotten, it had been lost. It, you know, somebody set it on a shelf in a storage room somewhere and forgot where they put it. And the priest finally finds the book. That's the second thing that a tender heart does. I will find the book of God's law. I will get my eyes on it. Look down at verse 19. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Do you understand that the word of God had not been read or spoken for centuries? Josiah had never heard it. And when he heard it, it made such an impact on his heart that the Bible says something. he did something really strange. He tore his clothes. I will not give you that assignment. Like, that's a weird thing. Why would he do that? God was tearing up his heart. And the external evidence was he tore his clothes. Those were royal clothes. Those were expensive clothes. Those were clothes that declared, I'm in control. I am put together. And Joseph knew that not only the nation was not put together and he was not in control, that he's, I'm not going to hide behind external garments that make me appear more godly than I really am. So he tore his clothes. It was a sign of repentance and humility in his heart that he would tremble at the counsel of the Word of God. Here's the third thing that a tender heart does. I will inquire of the Lord. Look at verse 21. He gathers a group of people around him that he believed could have gotten in touch with God, and he says, Go, inquire of the Lord for me. And for those who are left in Israel and Judah, concerning the words of the book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. And so he said, I'm going to pray and I'm going to gather people around me that know how to pray and we're going to inquire of the Lord about what we should do in regard to what we're reading. That's a sign of a tender heart. Look down at verse 27. God says to him through a prophetess, because your heart was tender. There it is. Because your heart was tender and humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard His words against this place and in its inhabitants, you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and have wept before me and I have heard you, declares the Lord. Not only were God's eyes on Josiah, His ears were attentive to His prayers. What's the evidence that you have a tender heart? When was the last time there was any external evidence of humility? That the unfinished business in your life, the condition of your heart, the condition of your family or this nation, the weight of that brought you to your knees physically. That there were tears that welled up in your eyes and you cried and wept over how far from God you had drifted. When was the last time you humbled yourself and actually told somebody, I'm not where I need to be. I have idols in my heart. I have, I, I have no 
no passion in my soul for God. That's a humble admission of a tender heart. He inquired of the Lord. Here's the fourth thing. I will keep my covenant with God. Look down at verse 31. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord. What was that covenant? It was the covenant that he read in the book of Deuteronomy and Exodus that Moses had with God. It was the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. He made a covenant before the Lord to do these things, to walk after the Lord, to keep His commandments and His testimonies and His statutes with all His heart and all His soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Again, Josiah had no idea what those testimonies and those commandments were until he had opened it up. And now that he saw what God wanted them to do, he said, I'm leading the whole nation to do those very things. And then finally, I will remember the Passover lamb of God. Look at chapter 35, verse 1. Just one verse there and we'll be done. Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem. The Passover was the celebration and the remembrance of how God brought Israel out of slavery into the promised land. And what they did was very violent and it was very bloody and it was very visual. Look at what they did. They slaughtered the Passover lamb. You say, why an innocent lamb? I mean, that that seems so brutal. The lamb didn't do anything wrong. Why would seeking God have anything to do with a violent, bloody sacrifice of an innocent lamb? One day... God sent Jesus, His Son, who was innocent and pure and beloved. And God hung that sacrificial lamb on a cross. And Jesus bled out to pay the price for the sin of people who weren't seeking God. Jesus Christ is the Lamb who was slain to provide a way for sinful man to come to a holy God. If you never sought God by accepting the gift of salvation made possible through Christ's blood shed for your sins, today can be the day. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can pray to receive Christ's forgiveness even now and seek God as a new creation in Christ. Well, we're so glad that you've chosen to join us today. If you'd like to visit our church and hear Pastor Trent preach in person, it would be great to have you at one of our weekend worship services. We meet on Saturday evenings at 5 and Sunday mornings at 9 and 11. We're located on Hickory Road, just north of Cleveland Road in Granger, Indiana. So according to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, there are four conditions for revival. We've already heard about the first three. First, if my people humble themselves. Second, if they pray. Third, God says if they seek my face. And next week, we'll dive into that fourth condition for an awakening. 
Pastor Trent calls it the pivot point of revival. I won't tell you what it is, but you can look it up for yourself in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 if you want to find out. I hope you'll join us again next week at this same time. I'm Aaron Paulus, and my prayer is that God's Word will resonate in your heart and mind this week. Resonate is a radio ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger. HarvestGranger.org